Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, folks? Uh, it's nice to have you with me. I know I say that quite frequently, but I do mean it. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is episode 148 with a my guest a guest, my guest, John Grady. John is an independent futures trader who primarily trades treasury bonds. He lives in Florida. His trading is purely discretionary based upon his read of order flow. Essentially, he's a scalper. So let me tell you, or let me share with you the reason why I asked John to come on the podcast. And I'm a little bit embarrassed <laughs> to say this, but it's only recently, okay, let me re, let me rephrase that. Until recently, I'd never really taken the time to understand the order book or watch and make sense of order flow, etc. Sure, I mean, I understood the order book at its most basic level, but really not much beyond that point. Through this exercise of learning more, I came across a few videos of John's, which did a brilliant job of explaining things and were very helpful, for me at least, to grasp things on a deeper level. So I now, I kind of have this view, or I'm fairly convinced, whether you use the order book as a part of your trading decisions or not, it's valuable as a trader to at least understand what's going on there. And that's why I brought John here to share some of his insight and experience with you, okay? So throughout this episode, we go over the basics, the value of the order book, some of John's trading methods, order types and managing positions, how to build skill at actually reading order flow, as well as the impact of high frequency trading and what's commonly known as spoofing. So with that being said, let's cut to my chat with John Grady. I'm pretty much open to talk about whatever you want, dude. So, um, I mean, if, if you hit on a topic that I'm not, I'll tell you, but, uh, feel free to ask any questions and then you can obviously edit it as you see fit for your, uh, your podcast. Excellent, man. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get this going. I mean, we'll probably run for around about 60 minutes or so. Uh, but let's, let's start with, 
a little bit about how you got into trading. I mean, we probably won't spend too much time on this because there's a whole lot of things I want to ask you surrounding the order book and related topics. But how did you get into trading and also when did you get into trading? Okay, so I'll give you the the short version. I discovered trading when I was 12 years old. I met a guy who was a stockbroker and retired at 35. And this is the joke that I share with people. I made the mistake of wanting to become a trader and not a stockbroker. Um, <laughs> that's that, you know, I, I, which it wasn't a mistake for me, but I joke about that because he wasn't a trader. He was a broker and he made a lot of money doing that. Um, but it piqued my curiosity in the markets. So I actually started studying the markets literally when I was 12, 13 years old. I discovered futures when I was about 16. Uh, my grandfather had a bit of an interest in them. He didn't really trade. He certainly didn't day trade. Uh, we're going back many years. I'm 41. So, I mean, we're going back to the 1980s. And ultimately, the interest in it led me to open some accounts. I, of course, lost money like everybody else did or everybody else does when they first start trading. And so I started pursuing jobs. I landed a job at a uh, an equities firm briefly in Colorado, and it was right around the NASDAQ boom and bust. And unfortunately for me, um, they started this prop firm, and it was right at the beginning of the bust. So they brought in some guys who had been trading the boom aspect of it. And what I didn't know then, which I know now, is pretty much all of these guys were order flow traders. They all watched level two. They all watched the time in sales and the size. And it didn't make much sense to me because I'd only been studying technical analysis as retail traders are prone to do. Um, so the market started to tank and some of these guys got out of the business and that prop firm didn't last very long. The guys that started it weren't really prepared to invest much money in it. But I did learn a, a little something, um, certainly a little something about level two and, and order flow from a guy that befriended me there. He was a very good trader. Uh, and that was my first real exposure to, okay, I kind of see how, you know, when 20,000 shares move, it moves the market 10 cents or 12 cents or 15 cents. And then I landed a job at a prop firm in Chicago. And they traded um, primarily treasury futures. They did have some people trading European futures, and eventually they put some people on grains and energies. A little something your listeners might like to know is that there was no department for stock indexes. So you're talking about a group of professional traders that started a prop firm, backed it with several million dollars, and they had their traders on fixed income uh, or grains or energies and nobody was allowed to trade stock indexes. That doesn't mean there aren't opportunities of stock indexes or in, you know, the S&P 500, but, um, basically they knew even then that you tend to find better opportunities, um, in like fixed income products like the U S treasuries or maybe the, the bun bobble. So in a nutshell, uh, I started working for them. That was the first time I'd ever seen, a depth of market for futures. I'd obviously seen level two for uh, stocks, but I'd never seen a depth of market for futures. And I was there for a, a little while and um, I figured it out on my own for the most part, but I figured it out because I was able to watch some other guys 
and kind of see what they were doing. Um, just because I can see their screens, one guy in particular. And then it all just kind of came together and made sense. And once, once I understood what was happening and I had actually talked to a couple of floor traders as well. And they began explaining, you know, how you look for big orders essentially. And a, a lot of people don't know this, particularly retail traders. You know, guys on the floor are not geniuses. Um, and it's not a guarantee that you're going to make money, but what they can spot or what they, were able to spot at the time were inefficiencies. So it was, it'd be a big pit and they might see that the market is bid 12 on one side of the pit, um, and offer 14 on the other side of the pit. And they could take advantage of that, you know, maybe, maybe buy 13s and sell 14s right away and work with a partner or they would befriend a broker and the broker would let them know when a big order was coming in. That's technically illegal, but it happened. Um, and you know, you know, a big bank's about to sell 10,000 contracts. You go short. They sell 10,000 contracts. The market breaks a couple of ticks. You cover. And it's free money, essentially. Uh, so that's why a lot of those guys complained when the floors disappeared. Um, so after that, I, I eventually left the office mainly just due to politics. It wasn't, um, you know, I didn't do, do poorly or lose my money. Um, it just, it wasn't a, a good deal after a while. And from that point, I went out on my own and then eventually started, um, you know, no BS day trading as a way to try to educate some some traders out there in the world about the, the realities of trading. Okay. And how long have you been out on your own now? Oh, uh, quite some time. Um, over 10 years. Okay. Excellent. So, let's get straight into it. Let's talk about uh, the order book. So, I just want to ask you a few really basic questions just to begin with, uh, just so that because I'd hate to lose someone right at the beginning and then they're just lost for the rest of the episode. So, just to make sure we don't lose anyone, I just want to ask you a few really basic quick questions. So, first of all, when we talk about the order book, what are we talking about and are there other names for it as well? Uh, there are other names. It is, well, it is technically the order book, but, um, these days you would also refer to it as a depth of market, a depth in sales. Um, or when people say the order flow, it means they're watching order flow within the order book. And what the book is, uh, it shows 10 bids and 10 offers, right? So if the current price of the market is at uh, five. You will see offers at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way up through fifteen, and you'll see the bids from five all the way down to even, and then you know the next below even, whatever depends on what product you're trading, obviously. So you get to see ten bids, ten offers, all the way out in the inside market, which is where the price currently is, right? So when someone says it's five by six, what they mean is there's a bid to buy at five and there's an offer to sell at six. And eventually for the market to move or for price to move, uh, somebody either has to be willing to buy at six or sell at five. Okay. And just to be clear, when you're talking about a bid or also an ask, you're talking about someone who's willing to buy at that price and then an offer is someone willing to sell, correct? That is correct. Okay. And probably one other thing we should just be clear on is the difference between a market order and a limit order. Sure. And as a matter of fact, I have a, not to plug this, but I do have a video um, on YouTube, free video, 
uh, so order flow basics and what are you seeing on the DOM? And it covers this in great detail, like the most basic detail of all. But basically, a limit order means, let's say you and I are participants in the market. And I say, I'm willing to buy one contract for a price of five. Okay. And you say you're willing to sell one contract uh, at a price of six. Um, we're both currently working limit orders, which means we're only willing to, to do a transaction at those prices. I'm only willing to buy at five and you're only willing to sell at six. Now, if I step up and say, you know what? Okay, fine. I will buy from you at six. I have now used a market order to hit your limit order at six. And then the transaction is conducted at six. Okay, so limit orders are visible in the order book and market orders are not. Well, market orders become visible once the transaction is created, right? So so the limit orders are what are visible in the order book. And then when someone hits a limit order, that is a market order. So the limit order is being hit by a market order. Yeah, so you see it in the the time and sales. Time and sales, that is correct. Yes, but not in the actual order book itself. You only see it sort of being taken out. Right, you'll see the transaction occur and you'll see the bid and offer change as a result of those contracts trading. Um, But yeah, you you obviously don't see a market order because it doesn't happen until someone decides to initiate it. So it's not like, I mean, I can sit there all day and work a limit order at five, but you're not going to see my market order until I actually step up and, and hit your offer at six and that's part of the poker aspect of it is that you know I'm, I'm hiding my intent and intentionally don't want to let you know I'm willing to buy at six until I do you know and then you're surprised by it or not surprised but that's how it works yeah so maybe explain to us why the order book is important for you and your trading like what's the value of the order book the value is that it lets you know where supply and demand is and that is ultimately what changes price so if there is more money interested in buying than in selling price will move higher if there's more money interested in selling than buying price will move lower what do i mean by that let's particularly let's say and i'll use um because i primarily trade treasuries the 10-year note for an example Let's just say I'm looking at the order book and I'm thinking about selling. Um, and right now the price is two by two half. So there's a, a bid at two and offer at two half. But the bid at, a, at the price of two is for 3,000 contracts. And the offer at the price of two half is for 300 contracts. So clearly there's far more uh, interest right now in buying at two. Right. And so if I wanted to sell, I'm going to place my a limit order at two half because almost guaranteed contracts are going to continue to trade at two half until the bid and the the offer even out a bit. So if it's three thousand bid by three hundred offer, buyers are naturally going to gravitate towards the three hundred offer thinking that the market's going to move higher. Um, if it's, you know, then changes so that it's now 1500 bid by 1500 offer. Now we're back on a level playing field where it appears you have an, an equal amount of buyers and sellers on both sides. And that changes. So from a scalping perspective, and scalping doesn't necessarily mean for one take, by the way, let me clear that up. It can be for five takes, eight takes. Just scalping means you're looking for, um, 
you know, opportunity in the moment based on order flow. Uh, from a scalping perspective, the order flow allows you to see at times when one side clearly has control because the bids, the, the buyers and the market orders on the buy side are clearly overwhelming the sell side or the sellers and the sell market orders are clearly overpowering the buy side. So let's, you know, if you're watching the order book and prices is a uh, 10 by 11 and suddenly market orders sell everything at 10, they sell everything at nine, they sell everything at eight, right? And they're just wiping out bids. There's no point in going against that. You know, you, you either stick with the sell side and you go short yourself or you, you stay on the sidelines. But when you can actively see market orders wiping out limit orders, that means, you know, someone's uh, moving size and that's what moves price. And just to break this down a step further, what are you seeing by looking at the order flow or the order book? What are you seeing that other traders who are not looking at this are not seeing? Uh, for starters, volume. That would be most important. So if, let's say you have your, uh, your typical guy who looks at a chart, right? And the market's moving down a bit. And so let's say the market has moved from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7, okay? And now he's looking at a, a price of 6 as possibly uh, taking a long trade, okay? Because let's say it's a technical support level. If he's just watching his chart, all that he can see is the market's move from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7, okay? But if he's watching the order book, he can see how much volume has traded on the way down, and he can also see what actually trades at 6. So it makes a very big difference if the volume that trades at 6 is 500 or 10,000, all right? And that might seem like a big number for people who don't watch liquid products, but that's, you know, again, a treasury number. If someone's only willing to buy 500 contracts at six, there's a very good likelihood that the market will now drop to five and four. But if someone's willing to buy 10,000 contracts at six, there's a very good likelihood that the market will now go from six back up to seven and eight. Um, so the actual volume, it, volume is the most important aspect because it shows you where there's a lot of interest versus not much interest in defending prices. And when you speak about volume, you're talking about, I guess, volume before it's actually traded, right? No, no, when it's traded, when it's traded. So not, yeah, because there might be, as I showed you in that example, there might be a limit order of a thousand, but when the market gets there, it, the entire thing is a spoof order and only, you know, a hundred contracts trade. Okay. So you actually are watching the the transactions which go off on in the order book. So you can see when it trades at that price of six, whether or not a hundred contracts trade there or ten thousand contracts trade there. Okay, and you can see how the market responds to that. So certainly you do watch the limit orders or as well, right? The bids and asks, because sometimes that is a clue, but some of those orders end up end up being canceled. Some of them are spoof orders, they change. So the really important volume to watch is the actual amount of contracts which are trading at each price. And that happens after the transaction takes place, obviously. And, and you're watching all this on the, the recent trades, um, time and sales? Yeah, well, I watch it on the depth of market, the um, 
the depth of market I use. I don't know if you want to even plug uh, it's, it's Jigsaw, but you can cut that out if you don't want it in there. Um, the, the depth of market that I use, and and most um, decent depth of market platforms show you the volume trading on the platform itself. So uh, it makes it very efficient. All you got to do is watch the order book and you can see the volume trading in the order book and then you can place your orders directly in the order book as well. I'm with you. Yeah. Now you said a couple of times that you trade treasuries. Um, what's your preference for trading treasuries? And you made a comment a little earlier as well about when you were working with a prop firm about how they were mostly focused on treasuries and also some commodities as well. But um, what's your preference for trading uh, treasuries and which treasuries are you trading? I watch the 10-year notes, the five-year notes, uh, the treasury bonds, and the ultra bond. And there's also a couple of others. There's two-year, three-year, and seven-year, but those don't have that much action or volatility. Uh, the In a way, I'm a bit lucky you know, that I even landed a job at the firm. That's why I know what I know. And of course, I became biased because that's what I was told to trade was treasuries. Um, so that certainly played a role in it and played a role in me learning those markets. Uh, but once I started to trade them and over the years, I began to realize why they chose those products. They ebb and flow in a way which is very logical and they're not too subject to really erratic behavior. So, for example, the problem with oil, let's say, trading crude. Not that it can't be done, you know, but the problem with it in my mind is that it's a market that's very thin. And if BP wants to step up and, and smack 700 contracts, they can. No problem because they're BP and they can do whatever they want to do. And so the, the thinner markets are far more easily manipulated. And not to say that somebody couldn't buy 700 contracts, but, but basically you can maneuver in those markets really easily and you can, you can push them around very easily. And so it can become more difficult to figure out where there's only going to be 15 contracts and where there's going to be 700 contracts that BP is going to trade. So you tend to have a bit more erratic behavior and you have a lot of spike movement. With the treasuries, you have a group of products they're all being traded primarily by banks. The banks are trading spreads and they're trading the yield curve in those products. I don't want us to go beyond people's um, heads and have them shut down. But in a nutshell, you have a group of products and there is an interplay between them. So you're actually able to watch four different products and get a feel for the interplay. And the products are very liquid. Uh, so they're not subject to nasty spikes and reversals. Uh, they tend to move with a, a bit more um, sanity, I guess, for lack of a better word. And not that you can't, you know, make mistakes or make bad reads, but the amount of volume that trades l- lends itself to really being able to pinpoint prices sometimes. You know, so for example, I can sometimes peg a reversal literally to the tick in treasuries. Uh, which is something I could never do in the S&P 500 or very rarely do in the S&P 500. Um, and it, you can only do that because of the way treasuries behave, you know, so it's a, it's an excellent product for scalping and, and going for kind of short term, uh, plays. And you can move a lot of size too. That's another thing is that if, if you become proficient 
trading gold, you can't really ramp up your size. I mean, the most you can trade is 10, 20 contracts. If you become proficient trading treasuries, you can literally trade 100, 200 contracts, you know, the same way you trade a 10 lot for the most part. Um, so if you do become proficient at it, there's no uh, really cap on your potential. Right. And you yourself, are you trading directional outright or are you spreading as well? I trade outrights. I'm familiar with spreading and I watch the spreads and I, and I teach people how to keep track of that stuff. Um, but I prefer, it's, this is more preference. I prefer outrights because I like to get paid when I'm right. So I don't mind taking a little bit more risk when I'm wrong. Uh, so that when I am right, you know, if the market moves 12 ticks, I get 12 ticks. I don't only end up making a tick and a half on the spread. And because you're a, a directional trader, do you have a bias going into each session? You know, even though you, you're very much focused on the order flow, do you still have an underlying bias for where you think the market might go uh, at the beginning of the day? It varies from day to day, and that touches on the topic of what I call context. Context is, what I mean by context is simply the conditions surrounding the situation. So, for example, on uh, non-farm Friday, right, the first Friday of every month, they release the employment um, numbers for the U.S. Uh, When you go into non-farm Friday, you know that at 8.30 a.m. when those numbers are released, the market's going to go haywire. It just is. It's a given. Uh, You know, typically on a Monday, with no news whatsoever, the market's going to be very slow. And there might be opportunity, but it's going to be, you know, slower and more methodical. So the way you approach each one of those days has to be different, right? So... uh, I do some days have a bias when I turn on the screen and some days I don't have any bias whatsoever. And much of that depends on what happened the previous day and what happened in the overnight action and what I'm currently seeing. So yeah, I, I certainly don't base it on charts or, or a day chart, but I do base it upon what happened in the overnight action and how the market seems to be behaving going into the opening hours. Okay. And I presume you'd be fairly willing to let go of that bias if order flow wasn't confirming with what you were anticipating? Immediately. Yes. That's one of the keys to, to, or one of the upsides to being an order flow trader is assuming you're doing it right and you don't allow your ego to take hold, which, you know, everyone can succumb to that at times. But the beauty of order flow is you have an idea in your head of what should be happening if you're right. And if the order flow is not confirming your opinion, you just get out. You know, you don't have to, to sit there and let the market move five takes against you. You can take a shot and realize this thing is not doing what I thought it was going to be doing and just immediately turn around and get out for break even. Um, so yeah, I'm willing to change my opinion very quickly if, if I'm being proven wrong or if it's not adhering to uh, what I think should be happening. Sure. And how many trades would you take on any given day? You know, just Generally speaking, average numbers. Generally, again, that completely depends upon the day. On a day like today, I took two trades, you know, um, three trades, excuse me. It was so uh, stupidly slow. And on a non-farm Friday, I might take 20 trades, 
22 trades. I, I don't normally get much beyond 20 or, or uh, maybe 25. That's pushing it. Um, and that's only on a really volatile day when there are a lot of opportunities. Um, so in general, probably on average, you know, three to 10. That might seem kind of wide, but it's not. I imagine as an order flow trader, taking three trades in a session must be very difficult to sit on your hands. It's extraordinarily boring. <laughs> it is. It really is. Yes. Um, but that is what makes, you know, that's how you gain consistency. That's the only way that you get ahead in this business is you must develop discipline and patience. It is extremely boring. It does require a tremendous amount of patience, but that's the job and that's the discipline. And, you know, the days that I lose are almost always days where I force bad trades. And what I mean by force a bad trade is I sit there for an hour, an hour and a half or whatever, and I don't see anything that I want to see. It doesn't, doesn't mean the market's not moving or there's not opportunities, but it, you know, nothing falls into my parameters and I take a trade anyway. And inevitably it's a loser, right? So you have to wait, um, till you see something, you know, tends to work, you know, some trigger that lets you know, Oh man, I've seen that a hundred times. Typically the market goes up in this situation. Let me take a long trade, you know, and then at least you know how to handle the trade. You know that if it goes through you, you have a set stop loss and you're okay with the trade. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty brutal and it's, it's brutal for, um, people that trade from home because you're isolated. So at least in the office, you can sometimes banter, although people are usually quiet in offices too for a while, but, uh, you know, you can take a break, go to lunch, maybe uh, have a conversation if the market's not moving. When you're sitting at your house, it requires uh, five times as much discipline. Yeah. Cause you just like want to be in on that action and yeah, you need that self-control, right? You want to be in on the action for something to do, but you can't be in on the action just to be in on it. You know, you have to have a reasoning behind it. And so that's the, the, the problem with it. Um, or it's, it's so stupidly slow and, uh, you, you're just bored and you start surfing the net. And of course, the instant that you start surfing the net is the instant that you miss seeing something that would have been a trigger and you missed the only trade you see all day, <laughs> you know. And then you jump over and now you want to trade it suddenly, but you've missed your entry price. And now the market's four ticks away from your, your ideal entry price, right? And then you chase. And of course, that's immediate. That's where it turns around and comes right back. Um, so that's how you mess up. <laughs> Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You said earlier that you're not necessarily just scalping for one tick. Uh, how long are you holding positions for, I guess, generally in time? And also, how many ticks are you, are you trying to take out? I know it probably varies quite a lot, but um, can you give us some sort of insight to how you do that? Sure. Again, that depends on context. So, uh, I might spot a trade where I think, let's say, um, we're at an area where the market's it's going to hold in a two-tick range for maybe five, six minutes. And I will take a quick trade and hopefully just grab two ticks in a matter of, you know, 30 seconds to maybe two minutes, right? That would be sort of a short-term trade, sometimes maybe even seconds. Sometimes if I'm on the wrong side, I step up and I'm immediately on, you know, it's against me. I just blow out in a matter of 10 seconds, depending on on the situation. Um, other times, if I think that maybe direction is shifting or if I'm sitting in a trade expecting a move to occur, but maybe not for a little bit, you know, I might sit in a trade for 10, 12, 18 minutes. Um, hopefully it moves within that time in my direction. So I at least have a little bit of an edge in terms of, you know, maybe the market's at least two ticks in my favor. So worst case scenario, I can scratch the trade. Um, and now I have a look at seeing whether it goes or doesn't go. So I would say on average, probably, uh, have to sit in a trade between, two and a half minutes to maybe 12 minutes, you know, depending on the context. Some, you know, I've, I'll sit in a trade for 30 minutes if it's going my way, you know, and there's just no sign that it's stopping. Um, I'll just continue to hold and, and move my stock closer and closer and look for the best exit price. Uh, but on average, I would say probably three minutes to, to 12 minutes. Okay. Now, here's a question which, I've, which I'm, I'm quite keen to ask you. As you use order flow to enter the market, do you also use order flow or your your read of order flow to exit the market either for a profit and for a loss? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's another issue that a lot of retail traders face is they fall into the trap of believing that you get in a trade, it moves in your favor, and now you just start bringing a trailing stop down and then you wait for the market to turn around and hit your trailing stop. And they, they often give back so much money doing that. Um, when, if they were watching the order flow, they could sometimes clearly see the market's just stopping. And there's no reason to let it come back two, three, four ticks, you know, um, just take it off right there. So yes, I use the order flow to enter and I try to always pinpoint the best possible exit. You know, it doesn't always happen by any means, but I'm trying actively to do that. And another uh, issue with the mindset of a scalper is there's no problem immediately getting right back in if I think I'm out too early. So let's say I buy it buy at five and I take the profit at eight and suddenly they go nine and I'm like, I don't think they're done yet. They're going to go nine, 10, 11. I'll buy nine and try to take it to 10, 11 and get out again, you know? And that's what programs are doing also all day long. So 
using a trailing stop really i mean you want to you want to drag it down to make sure you don't get caught in some weird reversal you know you kind of keep dragging it down as an emergency stop but um people should really spend some time trying to focus on taking the the best possible exit prices and not just automatically using a trailing stop can we just go into that a little further so do you have a predetermined amount that you're risking prior to going into the trade? Like, do you think that through? Because I know, you know, you're obviously uh, trading at very quick speeds. Like, do you know exactly how much you're going to be risking on that trade? Like in a dollar amount? I do. I do. Well, I do within a tick, let's say. So I don't really look at it from dollar amount so much as tick amounts. I'll figure out what size I want to trade, you know, based on the situation. Uh, and then I, I will completely adjust based upon the situation. So as an example, let's say the market is, is grinding upwards, grinding higher. And I think that maybe it's going to run out of steam and I'm going to take a fade trade. I'm going to go short, right? When I get in that short trade, usually I pick a spot where I know it should not go through me by more than one take. And if it goes two takes against me, I just blow out. Okay. Um, and that might seem like a very tight stop, but in that scenario, it makes sense because if it goes two ticks against me, it might go seven ticks against me, right? So I might as well get out, take the loss, sit back, wait, let's see what happens. Maybe try another short trade or you know what? Maybe turn around and go long, realizing that I was, I had the wrong idea there. So, um, I do know where I want to be out on every trade. Where that is depends upon the trade itself. So some trades I might actually be looking to enter in the hopes that basically it, it moves a tick or two in my favor and worst case I scratch. And in some cases I might be out with a one tick loss, believe it or not, because I just know that, you know, they shouldn't take this order out. If they take this order out, I'm, I'm on the wrong side. And there are other situations where I know I'm kind of in a, an area where it might chop a little bit. And I have to give those trades maybe three, four, five ticks. Five is a little bit excessive with a 10-year, but um, three to four, definitely. And you just have to give it that leeway to see whether or not your prediction is correct. So you just adapt based on the scenario. But um, absolutely, before I enter the trade, I do know where I'm most likely wrong, and I already have that stop-loss planned. And I don't deviate from it. That's that's also what kills a lot of people. When you deviate from your stop loss and you begin moving it, that's how, you know, what should have been a, a three-tick loss becomes an eight-tick loss. Just going back to that first scenario you explained. So you've the market's grinding up um, and you think it's probably going to turn around um, and you fade it. So you go short. You're trying to enter your short position at a point where you think the market shouldn't go a tick or two above that. Okay. What if Correct. you start, what if it does go, start moving against you? So the market continues to rise, you're short. Um, it goes two ticks above where you got in, but you begin to see a lot of offers coming into the order book. A lot of people selling a few ticks higher. How do you react in that scenario? It depends very much on the scenario, you know, it, um, and I know what you're asking. There are times when I know I might be a little bit early and I'll hold through that. So yeah, the market might tick up two ticks and then suddenly 
I see just a, uh, a flood of sell orders come back in. And now it's only one tick against me instead of two, right? You know, or they, or they're sitting and, it, and it's, it's two ticks against me technically, but there's a huge offer sitting at the second tick, right? So in a scenario like that, I might give it three, you know, and just kind of wait and see if they hold it. But then you start to get into dangerous territory if you, if you begin to give it more than that, because now you end up talking yourself into thinking you're right. But realistically, if you're right, when that next wave of sell orders comes in two ticks higher, it should bring the market back to your entry price. So let's, if I'm in a trade, I'm short and the market's two ticks against me. And again, we're not talking about crude. Obviously we're talking about a liquid market like, um, the treasuries or even the ES. If sellers aren't able to get the market back to my entry price relatively quickly, it means there's still a tremendous amount of buy side pressure. And so frequently the best thing to do there is just cut it as at a loss, you know, one take, two take, just cut it let it go and you know what if it does come back to my entry price sometimes that's just trading um and and now i wait and then maybe get in another trade you know a few minutes later and get the two ticks back but you can't question it too much if it's if it doesn't snap back on your price okay stops that you're using do you have a limit order sitting in the book i do i well i have a market order actually so i have i have a I'm typically always manually exit a trade, but what I have is when I enter a trade, I'll immediately place an emergency stop like four ticks off my price, Um, maybe five. That is, or or maybe three, depends on the scenario, but that's my stop in case the market sweeps very quickly against me. Like I'm clearly on the wrong side. It shouldn't jump that far that fast. so I'll enter the trade. I'll immediately put an emergency stop in, say three to five ticks away. And then I will manually figure out the exit point. So, and you can do that with treasuries because they go back and forth and they're very liquid. You can't really do that with thinner products. You almost always need to just mark it, you know, out. Um, but sometimes in the treasuries, I know I want to be out. But rather than hitting out immediately with a market order for three ticks, if I'm a little bit patient, I might be able to take a two tick loss or even a one tick loss, you know. Um, but worst case, I have the other stop in and, and, you know, I'll lose three or four ticks. So it's, and that's a market order because what you don't want to have happen is the market blows through that and, and you don't get, you know, hit out at all. It becomes a limit order, but it goes so fast that your limit order misses due to slippage. And now you're looking at an eight tick loss instead of a, a four tick loss. You can set a, a stop limit order. So in other words, let's say the market is currently trading five by six. I could set a stop buy order at eight. But what that means is if the market trades eight, the buy order triggers, but it's a buy order to only buy at eight, not to buy at nine. So it's not a market, a stop stop market order is a stop limit order. If I have a stop market order, as soon as the market trades eight, I will get the next best price, whether it's eight, nine, or 10. So the reason you want the emergency to be a stop market order is in case the market moves so fast in one direction due to some event you can't foresee, you do get out of the trade, you know, and it doesn't become a 30 tick loss in some crazy situation. Um, if it's a stop limit order and they get they eat through those orders really quickly, your order may not be filled, and now it's a limit order just sitting there at eight, and the market's trading twelve. Makes sense, yeah, yeah, 
makes makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, so, uh, just to the second part of the question, though. So your your stop is visible in the order book. Um, no, the stop's not visible. The stop doesn't trigger until the market trades that price. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you. Now, what order types are you normally are you normally using to enter the market and also exit as well when you have? A It'll profit? be again dependent upon the scenario. Uh, sometimes I always want to use a limit order if I think I can get the limit fill. So again, back to that first example, if it's three thousand on the bid by three hundred on the offer, and I want to sell. I'm obviously going to put a sell limit order with the 300, you know, because I'm, I'm likely to be filled on that order because there's such a discrepancy between the bid and the offer. But uh, let's go the other way. Let's say it's 3,000 bid by 300 on the offer and I want to buy. Well, my odds of getting filled with 3,000 bid underneath me are almost none. So then I'll use a market order and, and buy into the, the offer of 300. So I'm always trying to get a limit fill. But realistically, sometimes you just have to pay up the, the next price and um, take the market order, use the market order and, and get the fill or otherwise you miss it altogether. And with your entries, I know we're kind of jumping between entries, exits, bit of all over the place, but um, with your entries, are you getting in your full size at one position or are you kind of spreading it across a few different price levels? It's almost always full size at one spot. That's my particular style. I'm usually all in, all out. Um, there's some reasons for that. I, I take a little bit of time to explain, but uh, it, it tends to be best for most people. When you start scaling, frequently people get themselves into a situation where they're inversing their risk to reward. And what I mean by that is they end up risking, you know, like five ticks on their full size and then they scale out when the market moves in their favor and they don't capitalize and get the full payoff on full size. Um, that's when it, when it wins. When they lose and they average in, well, they're averaging into losers and that, that in and of itself is an indication that you were on the wrong side in the first place and you're probably on the wrong side now. So you're just doubling down into a bad situation. And it, it just doesn't work for most people. So what I tell people is if you can become successful at going all in, all out, then eventually you can learn if there are areas where you, you might want to scale a little bit, you know. But for, for me, for the most time, most of the time, it is an all in, all out scenario. Okay, right. Now, I guess just going back to some more general questions about the actual order book in itself and not so much about your specific way of trading the order book, um, you obviously do quite well at reading the order book in treasuries. Is it a case of if you can read one order book well, you can read any order book or are there really big differences between different markets? I believe there are very big differences, very, very big differences. Um, I actually did a presentation one time about choosing the right market to trade, and it was uh, solely dedicated to this topic. It's on Futures.io if you want to watch it sometime. The concepts are the same. So supply and demand does move markets. So if you have more money going one way, it's going to move the market. But the problem is in today's day and age, 
if you want to trade the DAX, for example, you almost have to be working a program that can trigger orders at certain prices, and you can't really take much time to think about it. So in other words, let's say you wanted to play a breakout. You already have to have the order working to play the breakout, and you really already need to have an idea of where you want to be out, and those orders need to be in the book. And because what you can't do is, you know, you can't buy evens in the DAX and then sit there and watch it go one, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, four, three, you know, and get a feel kind of for where it's stopping. It, it can spike in such a way that if you don't take advantage of that one momentum move, the market may completely reverse and come back on your entry price in a matter of a few seconds. So if you're trading thin markets such as the DAX or gold, um, I think you can't trade those effectively without using a lot of market orders that are already placed and or having a, an automatic strategy so that if your orders hit, you have an automatic trailing stop that comes in behind it. And you can do that with most software these days, right? So you execute it even. Uh, you use a three-tick trailing stop, the market goes from even to three, your trailing stop comes to break even. The market goes from three to six, your trailing stop is moved to three, you lock in three ticks of profit, so on and so forth. I think you have to use those kind of strategies in a thinner market. In a more liquid market like the treasuries and the S&P 500 or the bobble or the euro stocks, there you can use a little bit more discretion and manually adjust orders and get a little bit of a better feel for um, what's happening. So I guess the short answer is, yeah, I think there's a huge difference. And I don't think I could attain the same results in uh, crude oil as I can attain trading treasuries. Um, I think the concepts need to be known and people need to understand what they're seeing and why they're seeing what they're seeing with regards to volume and, and in the book uh, and develop methods based upon that information but the implementation of it is far different. Now, someone who might be new to looking at order flow, you know, they might pull up the order book and it probably just looks like a whole lot of numbers flashing on a screen rapidly. <laughs> like there's a lot of changes every single second. How do you begin to take valuable information from that? You like how do you build skill and actually being able to read the order flow? Uh, and are there any tricks that you use to kind of because I presume it's you'd have to be fairly good at doing some quick sums? There are you don't have to be good at doing sums because the sums are shown for you in the platforms if you have the the profile column and the transaction column. But what you where you start is you start by understanding what you're seeing and the impact that it has, particularly the impact that larger orders have. Then you start looking at the inside. What I mean by the inside is um, the market's currently five bid by six offer. That's where you focus your attention at first. And you start to notice how, okay, well, when they, when they buy six, and now it goes six bid, offer seven. 
that applies some pressure and that creates a little bit of a chain reaction and now it goes seven bid off for eight and that's how price changes. And as a, a new person looking at the book, that's what they want to watch in the beginning. They want to start noticing when price is moving and how it's moving and notice how the next price goes bid, 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 and then boom, they hit the spot where they can't go bid the next price. So it goes six, seven, eight, nine, and then they hit 10. Nobody can bid 10. Now it goes back offer at nine. Now it's bid eight, offer nine. So between five and 10, there wasn't any resistance, but now there's resistance at 10 and nine. Okay. And that's what they want to focus on at first, because if you're trying to watch all the changes and the bids and the asks, I mean, that's not possible because there's so many small orders adjusting. But you were trying to watch the total amount of contracts trading at each price. And then you want to watch how the market reacts to that. So kind of what you said earlier, where let's say you see the market going up. I took a short trade. The market goes two ticks against me, but then suddenly uh, a lot of sellers come in two ticks higher, right? Um, just take notice of that. Take notice of how volume is influencing price. And that's where it starts. And once you get a feel for that, then you can start to, to, to pull your vision out a bit and look at the bigger picture and say, okay, now we've traded from five to 10. They're stalling at 10, nine, 10, nine, 10, nine. Based on what I know about this market now, is it likely that it'll go 9, 10, 11, 12? Or is it likely that the sellers will be able to hold here and the market will fall back in 9, 8, 7, 6? And that's something that can really only be acquired with experience. And it's one of the reasons that I tell people to specialize in one market, particularly when they start. If you want to branch out to other markets when you get better, that's fine. But don't, don't, watch the euro and gold and oil and the S&P and try to make trades in all of them. You will fail almost guaranteed. You know, specialize in one market, learn the behavior of that market. And the reason for that is because the same people play in these markets every day and they don't cross markets, a lot of them. So what you want to learn is how the major players who move volume tend to behave on a daily basis in one specific market. Um, and if, you know, if you can get a grasp on that, then you can start to see the bigger picture and incorporate it with the smaller picture of, you know, six bid by seven, seven bid by eight and, and kind of make a, a best educated guess. Do you ever suggest, or is it a worthwhile exercise to record your screen? Because if you're very new to order flow and reading the order book, like I said, it, it can look like a lot of numbers changing rapidly. It's very fast moving. Um, to record your screen and just slow it right down and look at, you know, orders being taken out and put into the order book and, and that type of thing. Is that something worthwhile doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell all of my webinar participants to record their trading. It is the fastest way to learn. Um Either record it or, you know, some uh, brokerages offer market replay features. So market replay is also great. However you do it, you want to go back through, pause, stop, rewind, fast forward, uh, take particular note around turning points, just kind of see how the market was behaving, what kind of volume was trading, 
How did the market behave up to that point? How did it behave when it was pausing? How did it behave on the reversal? And if you'll record your trading and record the action and study it, you'll learn more from that in a month than you'll learn from journaling your trades in a year. Um, I, I definitely recommend that. How would you suggest that a newer trader, someone who wants to uh, be active in trading the order book, how do you suggest they go about actually identifying or trying to seek out high probability, low risk trades? A lot of study and screen time. I recommend that people begin. The first thing you want to do is you you have to make sure that you do have a decent depth of market platform, whatever one you choose. There's really only three in the neighborhood, okay? Jigsaw is one, and the key to Jigsaw is that it has these inside columns that show the, the, the uptick, downtick splits. No other platform does that unless it's a homegrown platform. Um, and it's 50 bucks a month to place orders through it, and you don't even have to do that if you're not trading live. So for, for the cost, it's stupid, ridiculous cheap. Okay, But there's Jigsaw, there's TT's X Trader, which is more expensive, and there's CQG. Um, there are some others on the, on the market, but I don't really recommend them. Those are the three that give you the most information. Okay. So you need to have a very good depth of market so that you can actually see the order book, see the trades, see the volume profile. That's where it starts. You have to kick down a little bit of money to, to get connected to those and get connected to a data feed so you can actually see what's taking place. Then if you want to sim trade or paper trade, that's fine. Um, it's not realistic. You're not going to make the same decisions as you would in real life, but you can watch market replay, watch your videos, and just start doing that every day for a couple hours a day. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's time consuming, but there's no substitute for screen time. And if you will watch the, the action for, you know, the first two to three hours of every day, not all day, but, you know, first two to three hours after the open, you'll be surprised at how fast you start to identify um, just certain situations where you can see clearly that they're just not going through this price. It's just not happening. You know, it just, no matter how many times they hit the price, they can't get through it. So if, if that's the case, then I'll just join that side and, you know, they may get through it eventually, but everything right now is pointing towards, them not getting through it and therefore I'm going to go with that side of the money and hopefully get paid as it comes off that price. And that's what I recommend. I mean, you, you, and you know, then ultimately, I mean, if you feel comfortable, you open a live account, trade a one lot, and that's where you really get your trial by fire, so to speak. Yeah. Um, with the order book, is it a value to anyone who's not a scalper, like what about someone who might be trading, you know, they might place their trades after the market closes. Uh, they might be more of a swing trader, let's say, or maybe even someone who's who's trading a little bit more actively, but certainly not a scalper, like someone who might be trading a 60 minute um, bar chart or something like that. Is the order book of any value to someone like that? No, it's, it's really not if that's your, your take on it. Let me, let me give two answers to that. So my, my, or my two responses. My first response is unless, okay, let me, let me don't hold back, back up. <laughs> to res- 
Yeah, two responses. My first response is swing trading is not a good idea for most people. And here's why. Too many things can happen overnight or over the course of an hour or two hours. And one of those things is a simple chain reaction that takes place as a result of large orders hitting the market. So here's what I mean by that. Let's say you have a guy who's a swing trader and he's watching the S&P 500. And to him, there's support at 2550. So his idea is I'm going to buy 2550s and I'm going to sit in this trade all day long and I'm going to see if it goes back to 2560. Okay. And if it doesn't, I'll get taken out at, at 2545. Right. So he looks at it as I got a two to one risk to reward or reward to risk. And that's his strategy. What he's not acknowledging is the fact that when the market hits 2550, if there's, there's not a predetermined fate set in the universe that's taking that market back up or down. What it is, it is a combination. It is a combination of orders feeding on orders. And so you will have literally hundreds of HFT programs that are now flat and they're watching the bids and offers at 2550 and 25, you know, 4975, 4950, right? 4925 and on the upside. And they don't jump into the market until they see something happen. So when the market cracks 2550 and goes to 2549, that triggers an HFT, which which goes 25, you know, 4875, and then that triggers 10 other HFTs that hit the next bids, the next, the next. And so it spikes the market down and it's this domino effect that takes place. And that one domino effect can affect the, you know, so that domino effect can affect the rest of the day and what happens over the rest of the day. So the concept that a person can think he knows where the market's going to be in two hours is, in my personal opinion, it's delusional. I know there are people that argue against that, but that's my personal opinion. You're just delusional because I've seen – you see it every day, just situations where markets only move because a couple big orders hit and then suddenly it goes. If those big orders weren't there, it would never go. Um, and there's no way to know that ahead of time until you see the big orders. Okay, So that's my first response. Uh, fundamentally, is different. If you're, you know, a fund manager, so there's a very big difference between day trading and, and position trading um, from a much longer time span. That's different if you think you know a company and you know fundamentals and you know earnings reports, right? Or if you play the news um, or if you're in the cattle business and you know something about the cattle prices and you have a, you know, you're pretty sure three months from now cattle prices are going to be higher. That's a different type of trading altogether. I think swing trading is the worst. Uh, it's, it's just crazy to me that people do it, but they do. So that's why really no. The, the book, a lot of people that do make a little bit longer term trades do incorporate my ideas. I get guys that call me about it all the time. But what I'm able to do is usually show them, look, man, you might be thinking, you know, looking at the 60 minute bar chart. But you, you have to understand right here, you, can you see how if this order gets taken out, it's going to cause a chain reaction? And the guy will say, yeah. And I said, okay, well, when you, if you know that ahead of time, there's no point in you sitting in that trade for two hours. You need to blow out of the trade, take the loss, and, and you know look for a better entry point, lower. Um, so if 
if a person's willing to uh, adjust their strategies a bit and react in the moment um, to what they're seeing, then yes, it can be helpful. If you're a straight up chart trader who's going to sit in trades for a few hours, then honestly, no, it doesn't make any difference. Okay. <laughs> I was expecting that's not to like that. <laughs> <laughs> not, you know, and I know how it comes across. I'm not, I never try to come across as being arrogant, you know, or that I'm a hundred percent right, but I, I've been around a long time and I just, I've, I can tell you I've never met a successful swing trader. I, I mean, it, it's maybe if you have a, a lot of capital and you, you sort of have an inside look into the industry or whatever, you know, sector you're studying in stocks, maybe something like that. Or you, but just looking at charts and thinking that you can know where the market's going to be in two hours is, uh, it is delusional. Trust me on that. Well, I don't think it's about knowing where the market is going to be. Like no one knows where the market's going to be. I mean, even someone like yourself, you don't know where the market's going to be, you know, over the next minute, you know, I mean, you probably have a pretty good idea from your read of the order book, but that's, that's true. And here's my response to that. It's a lot easier to predict what will happen in the next six minutes than in the next 60 minutes. And that holds true in every aspect of your life. You can, sitting right here, tell me with not 100% certainty, because I may hang up you know, without saying goodbye to you, but which I'm not <laughs> going to, but you can predict that for the next six minutes, you're going to be conducting a, a podcast with me. But over the next 60 minutes, you know, you kind of know what you're going to do, but you're not, you know, you might have this to eat, you might have that to eat. You may go here for lunch, you may go there for lunch, right? And now I'll extend that out a little bit farther, you know, what you're going to be doing tomorrow at 11 a.m. if you don't have an appointment made, right? So the same thing happens in trading. There are moments when it's far easier to predict what's going to happen in the next five to ten minutes um, than it is to predict what's going to happen in the next hour. So, I certainly I appreciate that comment of you're right. I don't know with a hundred percent certainty what will happen in the next minute, but what I do know frequently is the market's not going to move more than two ticks one way or the other in the next minute, and that allows me to make a little bit better educated guess than if I'm trying to figure out where it's going to be in 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 an hour from now. Um, And if you move volume. You don't have to have 10 and 15 and 20 tick winners. You can take two and three and four tick winners on bigger size. And that's what guys, for example, that trade Bank of America do or, or Apple, you know, they, they trade 20,000 shares and they're, they're scalping three cents on it um, because they know Apple's not going to move a dollar fifty over the course of the day. But they can pinpoint these spots where it's probably going to move three or four cents or six cents, and they do it on volume. So that's kind of that's where I sit, except in treasuries, not in stocks. Um, that's why I advocate that that style. But you know, whatever floats your boat. Okay. Yeah. No. That's that's a fair point. I appreciate that. Now you mentioned HFT just before, and I feel as though it's um, some people are probably quite upset if I don't ask you a few questions around that. So um, let's let's just address a few things about uh, high frequency trade and how that affects the order book and spoofing and that type of thing. So uh, what's a good question to ask to, to begin this? Um, you've been trading a, a fair while <laughs> um, and you must have seen 
a big, you know, the uprise of high frequency trading. Like, so the order book I'm sure is very different today compared to what it was 15 years ago. Um, how has that affected your trading? Like, how have you had to adapt? Like, what do you do differently now that you could have gotten away with, you know, 15 years ago? Uh, I don't know if that's a good question, but it might lead us somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's actually an excellent question. And it's more about what I could get away with 15 years ago that I can't get away with now. The speed is the number one problem. The... If 15 years ago, uh, or 10 years ago, even even less than that, really, if there was an order of, let's say, a thousand on the bid, and I was looking to go short if that order uh, was was getting hit, what would happen is you could actually see the the thousand go a thousand nine hundred, eight hundred, five hundred, four hundred, because it was mostly manual orders, guys clicking their mouse. Um, or programs that weren't being funneled through microwave towers into co-located servers, right? So you could see the, the bid giving way, and if you were fast, you could hit it as it was leaving, and the market would immediately break in your favor, and you would instantly be sitting in a break-even trade. And that's what HFTs are trying to do all day long. They're trying to hit orders as they're leaving, immediately be in a, be in a break-even trade, and then if it doesn't go, they just turn around and scratch. So they're, they're trying to risk nothing to make something all day long over and over again. That's how they work. For the most part, they can obviously lose, but that's what they're attempting to do. And that's why they're in and out so frequently. So the major difference in, in, in terms of adaptation is I've had to learn how to anticipate far, far better. Uh, it, it certainly is more difficult. I don't dispute that. Um, it can be done, but it's more difficult. So now, let's say there's a, a bid of 2000 and I want to be short. If it goes, I can't wait for it to start going. You know, I have to kind of make the judgment call at in the moment and say, you know what, I think sellers, sorry about that, I think sellers are going to hit this. And then I actually have to sell into a bid of 2000 and be one of the first guys to do it because if I wait and try to get it as it's going, I'll never get it. It moves so fast. So many orders hit so fast. So that's really been the big key is you have to anticipate a lot better. And in terms of that edge, it might seem like a small edge, but it's not. It's a huge edge or it was a huge edge. And it's why floor traders and, and guys complained when all that disappeared. Um, is It is a huge edge to be able to hit a big order as it's leaving and immediately be sitting in a break-even trade. Um, and that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I have to, I have to have a little bit more foresight in terms of rather than that, that 20 second period or 10 second period, I have to have more foresight into the next minute to two minute period, you know, and, and anticipate that they are going to wipe out that order. And now the, the next part I would say would be lack of volatility. It was very common to see huge moves, uh, a non-farm report would come out and miss and treasuries would literally run 90 ticks, three full points. It was insane. Um, and you could just buy it at any, any price and it would, you know, make 30 ticks in a matter of uh, a minute or less. Um, and that doesn't happen anymore. There's so much volume now that 
the volatility has been reduced. And now, you know, I do find myself in trades that would have yielded 12 or 14 takes um, back then. Now I'm, I'm only getting five to seven or, you know, four to six because it's just not there to be had. Do you anticipate that it's going to continue to get more difficult for someone like yourself? It's very hard to say. I, I think all the markets are viable. Someone asked me this the other day about whether or not it's still viable. And I said, well, it's been viable for 50 plus years. It's, I'm sure it'll be viable for a while longer. Um, I think it depends upon what this is getting out there, but it depends upon where artificial intelligence goes in the future. You know, my edge is definitely in my discretion. I'm able to, I can't act as fast as the HFTs can now, but I can use discretion to see how they're trading and have a pretty good idea of where the programs are set to go off and where the bigger traders are moving size. Um, if someone begins developing AI, and I think they already have in, in a few cases, but if they develop some AI that is not only reading numbers, but is truly grasping game theory in, in the way that machines play chess, um, at, at that point, it might be AI against AI. I mean, a, a good trader, in theory, should always be able to use some discretion and, and figure out how to compete with that. But... Um, you know, it's a possibility, certainly, that, you know, the best traders in the world eventually will, the AI will take them out like the chess computers did. Yeah. I actually just interviewed a guy last week and by the time everyone's uh, hearing this episode, uh, it'll be out by now. Uh, his name's Thomas Stark. And um, we had a really good chat about artificial intelligence and uh, quantum computing. And it was pretty incredible. <laughs> I mean, he's not uh, using it much in the way of a trading scenario, but he's just, uh, you know, he's a physics PhD um, background and it's just, he's fascinated by this sorts of technology. So, um, cool. Is he developing it too? Uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's involved in it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly in, in what capacity, but uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was fun to chat with. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is amazing. There's, there's no doubt, and there's no doubt that it's already being used by a lot of bigger firms. Um, it, it's yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I think the speed is truly more of an advantage than even and a good AI system. That's really where the the big guys have it locked down now. I mean, it, it's it's completely unfair, but it's just a reality of the world. You know, if you're a market maker. I don't know if you know this, but if you're a market maker, a couple of advantages to that are you get, you know, I don't know the exact specifics because I'm not a market maker, but I know that you get more bandwidth and you get it in such a way that your your orders can be executed faster really than anyone else's. Not only that, but you get position in the queue. So it's, it's like pro rata fills, right? So let's say there's a thousand on the bid. And you're working 300 of that, but let's say your 300 is last. So there were 700 contracts there before you, and then you add your 300, and now 100 lot prints, you'll get a piece of that, despite the fact that you were last in line. So one of the advantages to being on the floor was, and, and also on computer in the early days, was it was what's called FIFO, which is first in, first out. So if you're there, if you're the first guy in line, you're the first guy that gets the contracts and the trades there. Well, that's changed. 
So now you have the edge where you might add, have added your contracts later, but you still get a partial fill. And then you get that partial fill, and now you have a free look, right? So now let's say you put 300 in on that, that bid, 100 lot trades. You get 20 contracts of that. Boom, you pull the other 280, and now you have a free look to see whether the market moves in your favor. And if it doesn't, you can scratch the 20 contracts. Because you're so you're you're programmed so fast that you can hit the bid as it's leaving. There's just no way to compete with that speed unless you're on that level. You have the capital and and you're in that position. That's the real serious advantage right there. You know, and, and now if you can add AI to that speed, I mean, yeah, man, you're indestructible at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly interesting times ahead. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. <laughs> but uh, just one last question. And then we'll uh, wind things down. I want to ask you about spoofing in the order book and like phantom liquidity. So you're reading the order book and you're looking at kind of what bids are being displayed, what offers are being displayed. But you also know that some of that is not true liquidity. Like some of that is just being posted and the people posting that have no intentions to actually fill those offers. Now, I know this is gray area and it's looked down upon it's you know some people have been prosecuted for it and that that type of thing but it regardless it happens how do you deal with that that's a matter of learning your market very well again that's an extremely important part of it there are times when you can be pretty certain an order is real and times when you can be pretty certain it's not and other times when you just don't know. So the way that I deal with it is I just wait for the times when I think it's real or I think it's not. And if I'm not sure, I just stay away from it, right? So for example, um, sometimes there are orders that are just too big for that time period. Like, you can see that the market suddenly goes 4,000 bid and it, there's just no reason for it to be 4,000 bid, you know, in that, in the particular situation. And you know that probably the 2,000 of that or more is a spoof and it's going to pull away. Um, and so you can't rely on that to push the market. You know, it's not going to push the market. It's a spoof order. There are other times when let's say you're at a very logical technical level. And there's an order of 5,000 sitting there and it gets there and the 5,000 doesn't budge. So, you know, yep, there's 5,000 there. Now, how you trade around it, of course, depends on the situation. But you can, you can find spots where you can read whether or not it's real or whether it's not. And then there are other times when you just, you can't figure it. Uh, you can always figure a little bit of it will probably go away because a lot of HFTs just, pop 20 lots or, you know, 10 lots onto orders. So you might see an order of 2,500. Okay, there might not be 2,500 there, but there's probably 2,200 there, right? So the 300 spoof doesn't really matter or the 300 that cancel doesn't really matter in that situation. Um, when it matters is when you have a bunch of orders, like you have 3,000, 4,000, and 4,000 showing, and then suddenly when the market gets there, those all drop away to 1,000. Right. And now, you know, those are all spoof orders meant to prop the market up temporarily. It is technically illegal, but you're right. It happens every single day. It happens all day long. I don't know how you could possibly prosecute it 
But anyway, yeah, so the way that I, I deal with it is just if you have some experience with whatever market it is, you start to figure out which orders are real and which orders are probably spoofs. And if you can't tell the difference, just don't get involved in that location to stay out of a trade. Fair enough. Very good, John. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. I, I think this has been really interesting. If someone is, I know you've got a few videos uh, floating around on YouTube. If someone is uh, very new to uh, trading off order flow, is there any one of those videos which you might recommend they uh, check out first? Yes, I would say the first one would be order flow basics. It's, uh, I think it's, I titled it order flow basics. What is the DOM? Why is it useful? And that will explain, I mean, the basic, basic principles of, um, limit market orders, you know, price movement, size, etc. And then the next one would be order flow scalping with me. I did it with uh, Big Mike's trading when it was Big Mike's is now futures.io. Um, but it's my most viewed video by far, so I'm sure they can find it. Um, order flow scalping with John Grady from OBS through Big Mike's trading forum. And that takes order flow basics a step farther. You know, and it covers some of the stuff that you and I covered tonight. And then um, I show like some sample trades. Uh, I always try to do that and, and kind of show how you can see it in the moment and respond to it. I would say those start with those two, then read, you know, read over the site and then look at the other YouTube videos and just go from there. Yeah. And I can certainly vouch for that first video. It's it's brilliant. I watched it myself and obviously picked up a lot from it. So I'd certainly recommend if maybe if you got lost on anything we're talking about, watching that video will certainly clear this up. Um, I'll put a link to that video in the show notes as well. Obviously, you can also find it on YouTube. Uh, And John, for yourself, if someone wants to find out more about you, where's the best place uh, they should go to? Uh, My site, which is just nobsdaytrading.com. And if you have any questions, uh, there's a contact page. You know, definitely send me an email. I always respond to emails within a day or two. And I'm, I'm happy to do so. So, um, yeah, if you have any questions, just hit me up through there. Okay. And are you active on Twitter? I am. I have a Twitter and the username is also no BS day trading. So, um, I don't post on there that frequently, but I do try to throw out tweets here and there. And, uh, particularly when I'm kind of seeing something in the moment, sometimes I'll drop a quick tweet and, um, uh, I never like to be too committal, you know, because I don't want people to, um, take it as a suggestion, but uh, they usually work out pretty well, you know, and I point out kind of what's happening. And um, so, yeah, I'm on Twitter as well as Facebook. Same thing. No BS day trading. Excellent. Okay, John, let's call this a wrap again. I really appreciate you taking the time, buddy. Thank you. All right. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.